Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Joining me this afternoon, as usual, Chase Byers. How are you doing, Chase, in Harrisburg, PA? Doing wonderful, Joe. Good to be on today. Good. Good to have you with us again. And uh, Mr. Jeff Smelser. How are you, sir? Ready to go. Excellent. Excellent. And how's the weather in Exton, Pennsylvania? It's really nice. It's um, got a little, uh, few clouds in the sky. Looks like maybe a little rain in the morning, but it's really is a nice it, day. Is, it, is right. this what we come to, guys, as we talk about the weather? But, just to but it's spring. God's creation just <laughs> blooming, bursting out with joy uh, for our hearts. <laughs> You see that that's what boomers do is we we, we talk about the weather. Talk about the weather. Yeah. And millennials. And yeah, yeah. We, we talk about the weather and snowflakes. When, um when it rain when it rains, your knee hurts. Is that what y'all talk about? <laughs> okay. Shortly before it rains, it starts hurting. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not a joke any longer. So uh this afternoon, guys, we're gonna talk about the book of Revelation. So uh, I'm sure you all already have it, but if uh, anybody is joining us, uh, if you haven't opened your Bibles to the book of Revelation, please do so, the last book of the Bible, and one of the last books that's studied, unfortunately. Uh, people spend a lot of time talking about the book of Revelation, but my experience spend very little time actually studying the book itself, and it's so unfortunate. Uh, it's a book that... I say that's so, so unfortunate because we have this uh, this feeling about the book of Revelation that it's mysterious and scary and, and has a, a bunch of, of dark endings for, for people and so forth. And really the, the purpose of the book is anything but that. It's, it's to give hope and encouragement and to show the victory in Christ. And, uh, you know, it's, it is an exclamation point on the other 65 books of the Bible. Uh, we ought to see it as something that's, that's worth studying and, and worth getting to know better all the time. And just like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and on and on, I don't know everything about the book. I, I don't have it all figured out. I don't, have, I don't think I have any, any book all figured out of, of the Bible, but I'm working on it and I'm trying. And so what we will do this afternoon is humbly approach the timing of the book of Revelation, and I'd just like to make some suggestions from the book itself when uh, the, the, the timing, because that seems to be very critical to me, uh, is, is when, it was, when it was written or when it was to be fulfilled. Uh, it just seems very important. Those are two different questions. But I they guess, are. I guess they're related. I mean, in fact, is they are related, but right. uh, one, one is, when did John actually put pen to paper? And the other is, what was he talking about? When would these things happen? Right. And if I could just add this, and you can speak to this, just to kind of help us understand, because, you know, there are other books of the Bible, especially the New Testament, and really, I would say all the other books of the New Testament, it's not really relevant of, of what day and time or the specific year that it was written. Those things are helpful to know, but it doesn't make or break the book in order to know if Paul wrote Corinthians in 55 or 56 AD. Um, but as far as the book of Revelation, I think it does make a difference as I've had it explained to me. So if you don't mind, Joe, just kind of clue us in on why does it matter for the book of Revelation specifically 
um, that we should know about what time it was written, opposed to maybe some of the other books in the New Testament? Sure. Uh, so from my perspective, some of the books are more important to know the timing of when they were written than other books. And I think your points that you just made are all very valid. I think it is pretty significant to think about, for example, when the book of Genesis was written uh, or something mm -hmm. like that, because you have uh, naysayers and people who are antagonistic to scripture that will suggest that the book of Genesis was written much, much later than the time of Moses. And so uh, I think some of those studies are, are significant or important. And some of them would require a lot of uh, uh, external sources, uh, resources to, to study and, and to think about. Um, uh, I do think that we can come up with some pretty good ideas about when even like the, the law of Moses was written uh, from the rest of scripture and from the Jewish culture and so forth. Um, uh, I know years ago I was in a geology class. I'm not going to tell you what grade I got in college in geog geology, um, uh, but in the geology book, it quoted it from uh, a passage in Isaiah, and I'm forgetting now which passage it quoted, but it referred to the 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 the, uh, the, the source that it cited was the second Isaiah. Um, and the idea was that Isaiah was written by two different individuals, chapters 1 through 35 or 39, I guess, uh, written by one and 40 through 66 by another individual who called himself Isaiah, and those two books were put together. So some of those studies are important. I think that is exactly when the book of Revelation was written isn't as critical as when is it talking about the, the events, when are they going to be fulfilled? I think that's much more important. Um, but I would suggest that we have some really, really, really good hints about when the book was written within the book itself. Um, I think that's going to be really helpful, um, like we have with some other books, like with the book of Acts, for example. Uh, there's a number of things that are written in it that we can see. Well, we know when this person was governor, when this person was king, and so it wouldn't have been written before him because he's included in the story or something like that. And in similar fashion, I think we can understand a little bit about the book of Revelation. But more importantly, the prophecies that are contained within the book, are they referring to something in the first century, in the second century, in the 21st century? In the, the 31st century, you know, exactly what are we talking about for when they're going to be fulfilled? I think that is very important to understand that um, because there's been a lot of sensationalism uh, presented from this text. Is that the right word? Um, uh, people have, have tried to sell a lot of books uh, based upon, oh, well, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. You see what's happening with Russia. You see what's happening with Trump. You see what's happening with whoever, and they'll try to say that this is getting ready to be fulfilled. And so if we can see when the book says it's going to be fulfilled, <clears throat> that would take, a lot, take away a lot of false teaching, and I think it would put the book in the proper context <laughs> to get what I believe is to the key of the book, and that is victory in Christ. Um, that's probably a long-winded answer to your shorter question, but uh, uh, I do think that, that, especially this study, it is important to think about when it's fulfilled. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's important what you just said. It makes all of us want to consider deeper study of the scriptures in more than just a, a surface level way. And I, I think this is a good example of that, where it, there really is value in kind of digging into maybe some historical perspective or 
context mm-hmm. of, a, of a book uh, to understand its timing um, and right. when it's fulfilled. Right. Um, so maybe uh, let me let me change subjects just for for uh, a moment. Uh, Chase, you're uh, good friends with uh, Stephen uh, Rouse. Uh, he's on the Tuesday program, right? Um, are, right are you going to see him shortly? Right, will you yeah, see I'm him shortly? Him, Lord willing, I'll see him tonight here in just a little bit. So when I said, "Are you going to see him shortly?" Would anybody in our com- in, in, in overhearing that conversation ever imagine that I was talking about? Are you going to see him say two thousand years from now? No, I wouldn't have imagined <laughs> that. That's what you meant by that. So it is interesting when when people use certain terminology. It is universally understood to have some significant limitations. Until we get to a book like the book of Revelation, where somebody has a preconceived idea of what the book's talking about, and then they throw common definitions out the window and uh, make them mean, in fact, sometimes exactly the opposite. And and so that's really unfortunate. Uh, Look at the first paragraph of Revelation, the first chapter, if you would. Uh, Want to go on and read verses one through three? Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto his servants, even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and he that hears the words of the prophecy and keep the things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so... We know that John lived in the first century. Uh, It's hard to know exactly when he died, but probably sometime in the latter part of the first century, uh, he died. He certainly didn't live, if he lived into the second century, it wouldn't have been very long, Um, uh, but most historians would put him dying uh, toward the end of the first century, I think, isn't that about right? Yep. Um, And so John is writing this. So we know that we can say that the book was written during the first century, if John is writing it, I'm going to make that assumption for now, at least. Right. Um, and I think there's good reason to make that assumption when we read all of the other books that are written by him, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation. Uh, the same author seems very obvious. The themes that run through it, the style of writing and so forth, I would suggest uh, say that those were all written by the same individual. And I think pretty universally accepted. And, you know, you, you'll find people who, who will say, well, the style is actually very different than the Gospel of John. Well, it's a different type of literature, and the same author can write different types of literature, and to that extent, it's going to be a different style. But if you just look at the, the, the let's say, the sophistication level of, of the Greek, they're, they're both simple. They're both written in simple Greek. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's right. I think people miss the point when they try to say, well, the style is very different. You've written poetry, maybe. Have you ever written poetry? Oh, yeah, I can send you some of my poems. You'll love them. No, that's fine. I'll just take your word for it. But you've written poetry that was of an entirely different style than some other things you've written because it's just a different style. of, of it's, You're trying to create something of a different style. <clears throat> right, yeah. But even within that, you know, what are some of the things that we know, say, from the Gospel of John? Behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. Uh, I have over, uh, John 16, I'm not going to be able to quote it now. Um, uh, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In the yeah. world, you'll have, 
many tribulations would be a good year. I've overcome the world. Yep. The idea of overcoming is a statement that is used over and over in the book of Revelation. I would suggest that the themes of the book of John are very similar. A lot of them are the same as the book of Revelation. So yes, I think all of those points would be true. And so in this first paragraph, imagine, so this is a letter. It's a letter written to seven churches. They're identified. We've even talked about those in previous programs, especially Ephesus. Um, uh, but in looking at this, these, this letter that's written to these seven churches, imagine a part of your congregation, a part of your church, you receive a letter from somebody, and in their very first paragraph, they say, there are some things that are going to shortly take place. Uh, my marginal reference says quickly or swiftly. They all mean the same thing. Uh, and then at the end of that first paragraph, they say, uh, for the time is at hand or the time is near. You know, to, to begin the book by making those statements seems pretty clear. He's writing about something that's getting ready to take place rather quickly. Uh, you know, it, it's right around the corner, we might say today. Uh, and so he says that at the very beginning of the book. Now, if you want to hold your place there and flip back to the very last chapter of Revelation, in chapter, two, uh, chapter 22, there are five different verses in uh, this last chapter, and, and you sort of have this conclusion, conclusionary statement that's made from about verse 6 on uh, that, that John is making these, these conclusions. And notice what he says at the end of verse 6. I'll just read the verse. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the Holy Prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. The same thing that was said in chapter 1 and verse 1, shortly take place. Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. Quickly is a word that's in reference to timing. Look at verse 10. He said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand, or the time is near. Another time element given there in verse 10. In verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. And then again in verse 20, he who testifies that these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. And so in this conclusionary statement, verses 6 through 21, five times, maybe six, maybe I've missed one, but at least five times he uses time elements in the, as he's closing out the book. Time, uh, quickly, 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 three times he uses that. Uh, once he uses shortly, verse 6, and once he says the time is at hand or near uh, in verse 10. And so at least five different statements, or three of them are the same, I come quickly. The five different times he's emphasizing these things are getting ready to happen really soon. And so he opens the book and he concludes the book by saying these things are getting ready to happen. Now, I tell you, anybody that received a letter like this would understand then the contents between chapters 1 and chapter 22 were things that were getting ready to happen really soon. Now, the idea of quickly or at hand or near can be relative, but could they in any way at all mean a long way off? Or could the time, at, if the time is near, could that mean that the time is far away? You know, words have meanings. And they can't mean the opposite. If they mean the opposite, as some people suggest, and, and it's hard to say that with a straight face, but some people 
I should suggest that. And, it, and it's the it's the um work the, those two phrases working together that is impressive to me. So I, I don't uh, know if and, my internet is. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I think we're good. Your your internet is coming back up to speed here. Your connection. Um, but I, I was just saying, I, to me, it's the the working the, those two phrases working together in verse one, shortly come to pass, and then in verse three, time is at hand. Um, sh sure, if we just had the shortly, if you didn't also have the time is at hand, there, there are ways that people could argue that well, that means something else. You know what though? Interestingly, um, when I talk with people who believe the book of Revelation is all about things that are going to happen in the next, in our, in our lifetime, which would put it a couple thousand years after John wrote this, and I point this out, almost invariably, the reaction I get is not a sophisticated argument to show how quickly or shortly could mean something else. Almost invariably, maybe without exception, the reaction I get is just like, oh, they hadn't even noticed that. You mentioned earlier, people come at the book of Revelation with a preconceived idea that it's about things that are going to happen in the 21st century. 40 years ago, the preconceived idea was it was about things that were going to happen in the 20th century. Uh, but the point is, people really have got their idea about what Revelation is talking about before they even look at the book. It's not that they've looked at these first three verses and explained them away. They just hadn't paid any attention. Right. And, and imagine picking up any historical document and deciding what it meant before you read it and then ignoring all of the time elements of it. Um, we, we just don't deal with literature that way. But unfortunately, the, uh, the popular beliefs about Revelation and these scary images that are presented by people have, have clouded the judgments. And like you said, often they just ignore those statements because they don't fit the narrative. Uh, Chase. We just got a question. It's a good question because in Christian circles, we use, sometimes use the terminology that Jesus is coming soon. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that is, uh, you know, one of the hymns that we sing, Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom, trumpets will sound. And is that language misleading then to, to say Jesus is coming soon? That's the question. So let me, let me correct you a little bit because we don't sing that. Uh, you all may. I don't. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't sing that song. I, I think that that is a song that's based off of a lot of misconceptions of Matthew 24, um, especially the, is it the second and third verses or something like that. Um, well, uh, I don't know, Joe, because I don't sing it all that much either, but go ahead. Yeah, but I, I, would, I would suggest that we ought not to sing that because we don't know that Jesus is coming soon. And it, again, it's in the context of the final judgment. Many will meet their doom and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I think that, that that kind of a song is a bit uh, dangerous to present. Can you imagine preaching a sermon about, we have no idea when Jesus is going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Now let's stand and sing Jesus is coming soon. Um, it just doesn't quite fit the, the scriptures. I know a lot of, a lot of brethren disagree with me on that. So you're making me, you're, 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 you're stepping on my toes here because you make a good point. Preaching a sermon, you know, he could come this week or he could come a thousand years from now. Now let's stand and sing Jesus is coming soon. You make a good point. I have not had a problem singing that song because my thought has been, well, in the context of eternity, he's coming soon. It's probably not what the author of the song had in mind. Uh, but it's that kind of thinking 
that somebody could try to finesse Revelation chapter one, verse one, or verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse one, and say, well, shortly, shortly come to pass means in the context of eternity. But the fact is, once you put it with the time is at hand and with some of the other time indicators that we're going to see, no, he's, he's not saying in the context of eternity, even though it's 2,000 years from now, he's saying in the near future. Uh, and the fact is, most people have not bothered to consider this evidence in the first three verses you're pointing you're pointing to right right and and and, and certainly with songs uh i am quite forgiving and hope others will be toward me when it when we deal with poetry uh i do think that we have to allow people to have uh some different interpretations on in the way that you described i've heard described before and so uh to uh let each man be convinced in his own mind i'm, I'm certainly happy with and that. given that you are an expert poet uh, then uh, we'll have to take that as authoritative there. Um, I, am, I am going to send you my poem now. Uh, <laughs> you're I'm not going to read poem, it online. Your one poem? <laughs> my poem? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, some of the greatest artists, they only have one painting that they're famous for. Well, so. One hit wonder. <laughs> uh, so, not, a fair, not a fair comparison, Joe. <laughs> And we got another question in verse one yeah. translation says signify whereas the esv uses the term made it known i've had a conversation with someone who told me i made more of john using signs than what john wrote then he turns around and plays down the term shortly that it does mean shortly happening can you address that only if you have time just real quickly i do think brethren have made too much some christians have made too much of the fact that it says he sent and signified it by his angel and they jumped on that word signify and said, see, that means that the book of Revelation is full of figurative imagery because it says signify. Uh, the word translated signify here just means indicate. It can be indicating something by means of figurative things, or it may not be figurative. Um, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to be read into that word signify in terms of the um, nature of the imagery in the book of Revelation. Again, that would be a place where people are, are just taking a word and making it mean something that it normally doesn't mean. If, if I told you I, I was going to, when, when you're driving down the street, I'll signify where you need to turn. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll give you a signal. Uh, th that means I'm going to, like the ESV, I'm going to make it known that those are synonymous terms. They, it, it doesn't mean confuse it or, or somehow, uh, you know, put this in uh, mystical terms or something. Um, signs point you to something. Um, and so even if it is, you know, if we use the word signify, I think it, it comes to the same point. Um, these, are, these are not things that ought to be overly confusing to us. Now, again, I don't have an answer for every question, but I think by far the majority of the book, we can, we can grasp the concepts that he's teaching, uh, much like Genesis or, or Matthew. Um, so, one of the things that I want to, to note here is he's writing this letter in the first century, if we accept that it's John, he's writing it to the seven churches, that's who he says he's writing it to, those seven churches were in existence in the first century, and look at some of the things that he says to those churches, for example, in chapter two, to the church in Pergamum, in verse uh, 16, the church of Pergamum was not doing well, the, they, they had a lot of issues, um, uh, they, they were compromising in ways that they certainly should not. And in verse 16, Jesus tells them, repent or else I will come to you quickly 
and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, so chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus says, repent or I'll come to you quickly. Now, some people say, well, are you saying that, that Jesus has already come? Yes. I'm saying that if they didn't repent, Jesus was going to come. I'm not talking about the second coming. In fact, I don't even, I almost never use that phrase second coming because I believe that God has come multiple, multiple times, not incarnate, not, not in flesh. He's, he's come once in the flesh, but he's come multiple times. And I think that's without dispute. Think about the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. What was it when, when God saw that they were building a tower? What did he say? Come, let us go down. Uh, so did, did God go down in Genesis 11? Yes, he did. Uh, not, again, not incarnate, not in flesh, but he came down. And so he came and he judged. You have passages like Isaiah 13 and 14, where he's going to come against Babylon, and uh, Isaiah 34, where he's going to come against Edom, and Isaiah 19, where he's going to come against Jerusalem. And, you know, a lot of passages where he talks about he's going to come against them, but he's not talking about physically coming. He's talking about judgment, just like he is here. If he's not saying that, is the church in Pergamum still in existence? Is, is the church in Pergamum still around? Nope. No. So it would be an empty threat. It, 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 if he wasn't coming, then, then it wouldn't mean anything to this church. He said, you know, if I said, Chase, uh, I'm, I'm coming quickly to, to I, I'm, I'm coming to you quickly. And Chase is waiting at his house and waiting at his house and waiting at his house. And uh, I, I'm over at Jeff's house and I say, hey, Chase, how's, I call and I say, hey, Chase, how's it going? He said, well, I thought you said you were coming. I said, no, no, I didn't mean I was coming. He said, well, you were coming. You were coming to me. You see, that doesn't work. If he says he's coming to Pergamum, then he came to Pergamum unless they repented. And in this, in very similar fashion, look at chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 3. In uh, chapter 3, now I've lost the uh, verse here, um, uh, verse 11, to the church in Philadelphia. Now, it'd be pretty hard to be different from the church in Pergamum or from the church in Philadelphia. Thanks, Chase. And... Uh, the church in Philadelphia was very faithful. Uh, and look what the, what the Lord says to them in chapter 3 and verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. So in chapter 2 and verse 16, it's a threat, if you will, if I can use that term. Uh, and in chapter 3 and verse 11, it's more of a hopeful promise. Um, uh, both of them are a commitment from God. Either you repent or I'm going to come quickly. Hold fast to what you have. I'm, I'm, I'm coming quickly. And so did Jesus come quickly to help the church in Philadelphia? I believe that he did. Um, uh, not Again, not incarnate, not in flesh, but I believe that he came. You, uh, Keep on turning in our Bibles. I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time before I get to uh, some of the really, I think, I missed that, Jeff. Uh, you you were frozen for just a second, and I saw I was going to interject something, but you're not frozen now, and you're running out of okay. time, so go ahead. Yeah, so chapter 6, look at chapter 6. Uh, in chapter 5, the lamb, the lion lamb takes the book from the hand of him who sat on the throne, and the book has seven seals on it, and he begins to open those seals. The first four seals have judgments that are coming upon the earth, and then in the fifth seal in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood upon them that dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren would be killed as they were, was completed. And so you have these souls that are under the altar, and they're crying out, how long? That's a time question, right? And the answer is given to them to wait a little while longer. Now, some of those souls we've already had identified, like in uh, chapter 2, uh, you have the name of one of them, Antipas was a faithful martyr, chapter 2 and verse 13. You have these souls that, are, that have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony. Um, and so they're crying out, when are you going to have uh, avenge our blood, God? And God says, wait a little while longer. Now, again, can you imagine? if they've been waiting 2,000 years for, for this to take place, um, I suppose it's possible, but that's not the way that we use language. Uh, I'm just suggesting that, especially when we consider the volume of timing passages, chapter 1 and verse 1, 1 and verse 3, 216, 311, now chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, and then we've already looked at chapter 22, verses 6, 7, 10, 12, and 20, uh, all of those verses telling us that these are things that are getting ready to happen right around the corner. Uh, Chase, did you have a question or a comment there? We do have a comment on Facebook. We got a good question. So Holly Schaefer wrote, what about the fact that some of God's prophecies and foreshadowings have had multiple iterations and that while this letter was written to those people in that time, there will also be another more complete iteration. Maybe if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think about uh, Genesis 12 with the several blessings, then it's not just three, but the, the several promises God gives in Genesis 12. But I'm thinking about the, the you know, you're going to have descendants, multiple descendants, and you're going to have this land. And there was certainly a way in which God fulfilled that to Abraham in one sense, but it was more complete in Jesus. Uh, and that came centuries after, obviously. And so why, why couldn't that be the case here, I guess, might be the question. Yeah. So to me, one of the classical examples of that, if I'm understanding the, the statement right, would be the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7, that the, his seed, his son would sit upon the throne. Uh, Solomon says that's fulfilled in him, but then we certainly see that that's fulfilled in Jesus. How do we know that that's a dual fulfillment of that prophecy? Because this was that it's a dual fulfillment of that prophecy. The only way that we know that something is a dual fulfillment is if the scriptures tell us that it's a dual fulfillment. I would suggest that it would be presumptuous for us to say that this is a dual fulfillment unless there's something in the text that tells us that it's a dual fulfillment. Now, it's possible, but I think it's, that's presumptuous. I don't mean that to be an insulting word, but we are going to be presuming something about it beyond what the scriptures teach, unless there's something that I've missed in the text. Um, yep. So Great answer. Uh, I, that, that's how I would answer that, uh, that thought. So to me, there's also a really helpful passage. Uh, look over at chapter 13. In chapter 13, you have this description of uh, two beasts, the sea beast and the land beast. And in chapter 13, uh, would one of you all want to read verses uh, 1 through, um, let's read 1 through 9, if you would, please. Revelation 13, 1 through 9. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. 
And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay, let's take a look at this uh, slide here. We'll pick up kind of in the middle, if I can get that to come up right. Uh, looking at this sea beast, some of the things that are said about him, he has these heads and his horns and blasphemous name. Uh, the imagery of him is like a leopard and a bear and a lion. He has power and the throne and he has authority. He's killed and then he's healed. Uh, the world marvels and follows after him and worships him. He overcomes the saints. And uh, then uh, we didn't read it, verse 10, but what happens to him is what he's been doing to others. Uh, he leads into captivity, shall go into captivity. Um, uh, and so just thinking about that description of the sea beast, especially noting that these things right here, uh, I think that those points serve to show us that this beast is being presented as an alternative to Jesus. Uh, you know, all the things that we see there, particularly in verses two and three, we see happening to Christ, um, uh, and uh, especially thinking about the book of John, maybe. Um, and uh, so this sea beast is kind of a, a false Christ that's, that's being presented there. But also recognize when we talked about in verse 2 that what we saw was a leopard and a bear and a lion. Um, uh, back in Daniel, the second chapter, we're not going to have time to go into this in great detail, but you have uh, this uh, image uh, of uh, the statue that was, uh, that was seen by Nebuchadnezzar. But then also in the seventh chapter, you have another vision that's given. And uh, it's of a lion and a bear and a leopard uh, and uh, a great horrible beast. Um, and I think that those are parallel. Again, we can study Daniel 2 and 7 sometime if you'd like. Um, uh, but Babylon is even identified as uh, the, the lion in the text. Um, we know from Daniel 8 verses 20 and 21, or is it 21 and 22, that Medo-Persia and Greece are being talked about as well in that context of Daniel and so the four kingdoms that are talked about there, the fourth kingdom would be Rome. That puts the book of Revelation, what he sees here, as the, the same thing. Might just make note of this. I think this is kind of interesting. What Daniel sees off into the future in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And they're all are the conglomerate of those is this terrible beast, right? Uh, that, that's, what, that's what Daniel sees, lion, bear, leopard, and a beast. What John sees is the, op the opposite order. He sees a leopard, a bear, and a lion. It's like one of them's looking into the future and the other one's looking into the past. Uh, the exact opposite order. And Rome has taken over those previous countries, those, those previous uh, nations, uh, empires. And so we're dealing with the, Roman, the timing of the Roman Empire. 
And we noted those heads and horns in chapter 13. Daniel also talks about those. Uh, here's the, the quote from Daniel 7 and verses 7 and 8. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a beast dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and had huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling residue of its feet, different from the other beasts that were before, and had ten horns, as considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so if we look at the Caesars, the Roman emperors, uh, and we begin, and this list is, uh, you can find it all over Google, uh, mm -hmm. encyclopedias, and, and everywhere else, fairly uh, um, consistent, I, I think, um, uh, beginning with uh, Augustus, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, uh, and then I've got three that are inset, Galba, Altham, Vitellius, and then Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Um, mentioned as, as we go through this, um, well, let me just let the slides talk about that. In Daniel 7, he talks about three of them are plucked out. When Nero died, Galba tried to take the throne. He was quickly murdered. Otho took the throne. He was murdered very quickly as well. Vitalius was murdered right after him. While that was taking place, Vespasian was trying to get back to Rome as quickly as he could from the siege of Jerusalem. It left his son Titus as the uh, as the general besieging uh, Jerusalem at the time, Vespasian came back and uh, then took the throne and reigned for about 10 years. Uh, so there was actually one year in which five different Caesars reigned. Uh, the year that Nero died, you had Nero, Galba, Alpha, Vitellius, those three were plucked out. And then uh, comes Vespasian, who's going to reign for a while. So maybe just kind of analyzing uh, those uh, different kings and just kind of working through them uh, Daniel saw 10 and then an 11th. What he says in Revelation 17, Revelation 17 is inspired commentary of Revelation 13. We don't have to guess what Revelation 13 is talking about because he tells us four chapters later. In Revelation 17, he says concerning those seven heads in verse 9 that they are seven mountains, which Rome is pretty famous for being known as the, uh, the city which sits on seven hills. Uh, he says also in verse 10 that they are seven kings. Now, some people have suggested that the number seven here is just a symbolic number, and maybe it is. Sometimes we find that, you know, do I forgive my brother seven times? No, 70 times seven. Seven can be symbolic. But here, it's not just the number seven, but it's also broken down for us. He says in verse 10, five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Let's just think about that. He says five of them have fallen. That would mean that, that Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, that Nero has died. For John's sake, he ignores Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. He doesn't pay any attention to them because they're insignificant. But he says that the next one, he says five have fallen. One is, that would be Vespasian. And then he says, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Uh, and so look at Titus. He says he's going to continue for a short time. How long did Titus reign? Two years. That's a pretty short time. Uh, look at, compared it to all the other Caesars that are on that list. Um, uh, Titus was only going to reign for a short period of time. I believe that this passage right here lets us know that the book was written 
during Vespasian's reign. Five have fallen, one is. So it was written sometime between 69 and 79 AD. Now, generally speaking, people will talk about the early date or the late date of the writing of the book, early 60s or in the 90s. I think both of those are wrong based upon this text. Uh, I think it's possible it was written in 69. Um, but I would suggest that there's a middle date that the book itself tells us. Five have fallen, one is. Even if you were talking about Galba, Otho, Vertelius, it's still going to be one of those. But I think it's pretty clear that he's skipping those three because he says the next one is going to reign for a short time. That's going to be Titus then. And then he says that the eighth is of the seven and is going to perdition in verse 11. That would be Domitian, who was a horrible, horrible king uh, in the Roman Empire. So as far as when the book was written, it was written during Vespasian's reign. And he says that these are things that are getting ready to happen really, really soon. Titus is only going to reign for a short period of time, and then comes Domitian. Now, also within the book, and I've skipped over several of these points, he talks about some bad things that have already happened, like Antipas being killed in chapter 2 and verse 13, or the souls that are under the altar. And there's a number of other illustrations of things that have already happened to them, that they've already been under a tribulation. And so I would suggest that what he's saying in this book is that concerning this beast, that you have the beast that was, that's past tense. He is not, that's present tense. And is he, he is also himself the eighth and is going to, as of the seven, is going to perdition. I believe that when he talks about this beast, this sea beast, he's talking about two different individuals, Nero and Domitian. Nero has already died. The, Jew, the, the Christians may be thinking we're going to find some relief. Not so much. Now, Vespasian wasn't a great man. He wasn't an honorable person, but he wasn't a persecutor of the Christians like Nero and like Domitian. And so I would suggest to you that the book was written during the time of Vespasian, focusing on the things that are going to happen during Domitian's reign, which was just not very far off for these Christians here. Uh, I'll pause there. Let me go out of that sharing the slides. See, you guys got any questions you want to follow up with on that or, or disagreements about it? Feel free. No, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I was going to ask about uh, when it talks about the one who uh, is of the seven, what does that mean? I think that he's of the seven in the sense that he is of Nero. Um, uh, I think that he's, and then maybe also put that together. So we got that text from chapter 13, um, uh, and we didn't talk about the land beast, who I think is the idea of false worship, Caesar worship there, but that can be debated. But notice what he says in verse 18, and this is one of those passages that it's so sad that people get frustrated about, or it's sad that I'm completely wrong. Uh, one way or another, it's sad. He says, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for, the, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. People are like, oh, 666, is that, the, is that the virus or is that the vaccine or is that the, you know, Bill Gates or whatever, you know, and people get scared of that. Yeah. What's the verse saying? He's a man. Don't be afraid of him. What did Jesus say? Fear not he who can destroy body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We ought not to be afraid of these beasts. 
It's a man. Domitian is but a man. And so when people get all worked up today, and I would say that for, for Holly's point, I think there's great applications to this book today, but I don't believe he's talking about things happening today. But sometimes you hear people, they get so worked up about Trump or Biden or Putin or the, the uh, uh, I started to say the Shah of Iran, but that's uh, too old. Um, uh, let's say the Ayatollah, um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to study ancient history to get the Shah of Iran. Um, uh, Even get so, the Ayatollah now. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, people get all worked up and all scared about what these different political world leaders are going to do. They are all 666. They are all men. And I, I think that boy, we need to, to wrap our heads around that and, and wrap our arms around that. And, and that's a point of hope in this book. But Domitian is but a man, and the, the Christians in those seven churches did not need to be afraid of him. So I know I ran through that really quickly, and I'd be more than happy to share my slides with anybody that wants. In fact, I skipped over several of the slides, but uh, uh, you know there, there may be some holes in that. I'd be happy for somebody to, to, to try to shoot holes in them, not me. Um, uh, but thank you, uh, thank you for taking us through that, Joe. Sure. And we are out of time uh, for this afternoon. So thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll look forward to being with you next Wednesday, Lord willing.